Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about the time of troubles. This was a this is a period of Russian history that was filled with uh, with anarchy, with chaos and lawlessness. After the death of Tsar Fyodor I, this death it plunged the Tsardom into disarray, sparked a succession crisis, and for the next fifteen years. No one seemed to be able to agree who should be sitting on the Russian throne. There was bitter conflict uh, for the Tsarnam. There were pretenders. There were usurpers. There were invaders. Just about everyone was having a crack at getting their ass on the throne there. And as a backdrop to this succession crisis, of course, there were riots. There were rebellions. There were uprisings. There were invasions. Russia was in total turmoil during this period. All sorts of stuff coming your way this week. All the half-assed history favourites. We've got blood, we've got guts, we've got horrible murder. But as a special treat, as a special treat for you to enjoy this week only, we've got also long-lost heirs coming back from the dead three separate times. My goodness me, what a treat that will be. Anyway, for much of this crisis, Russia was effectively a failed state, right? Leaderless, fractured, couldn't look after its own people, under constant threat from its neighbours. Between invasions from Poland and Russia's allies turning on them, it, it's incredible that, I mean, Russia even survived through this period, but obviously it did. I mean, still around today, so obviously it made it through one way or the other. And very interestingly indeed, the, the conclusion of the Time of Troubles ended up setting things up for some very neat historical bookends in Russian history, as we'll discover here. So very interesting story to get across. Thanks to Alexander Markov, alert listener Alexander Markov, for sending uh, sending this in, this in as a topic suggestion. Good on you, Alex, mate. Uh, he did say he was looking forward to me butchering some Russian names today, so we'll see how we go there, shall we? Anyway, here we go. Let's get to it. Have a chat about the Time of Troubles, a turbulent and wild time in Russia's, in Russia's history. Off we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to, uh, well, we've got a couple of options, actually. Um, usually the Time of Troubles is is said to have begun with the death of Theodore I in 1598. But I want to go back a little bit before that, a little bit earlier, to the time of his dad, uh, the bloke who had been Tsar before him. And uh, this is a bloke you... Uh, probably heard of before. His name was Ivan the Terrible. Very, very famous figure from Russian history indeed. Now, Ivan the Terrible, he turned the Grand Duchy of Moscow into the Tsardom of Russia. He used conquest uh, to to transform the state into an autocratic empire under his rule. Uh, obviously, hugely engaging figure, probably worth an episode of his own right at some stage, to be honest. Despite establishing Russia as a powerful empire, he absolutely ravaged the state's economy. Countless people died under his reign, of course. And he himself, I mean, for a bloke named Ivan the Terrible, maybe this isn't uh, going to be a surprise, but he was a bit of a loose unit. He was prone to fits of rage and and violence, for instance. There was the time that he attacked his pregnant daughter-in-law, causing her to miscarry. And then when his son, who was also named Ivan, uh, had a go at him about it, Ivan the Terrible whacked him over the head with his scepter and killed him. So, yeah, pretty well-named fella overall, Ivan the Terrible, in the sense of, you know being fearsome and whatever else, but also in the sense that he was just a bit of a terrible bloke, to be honest. Anyway, he died in 1584, right, after five decades at the helm, and rather than being succeeded by his son Ivan, who, you know, had been groomed for leadership before even his skull caved in, 
he was instead succeeded by his younger son, Theodore, who became, of course, Theodore I. Now, Theodore, very, very different to his old man. He was a quiet bloke, quite retiring, uh, not very interested in politics or leadership or anything else like that. He's a good fella, by all accounts. He was kind and unassuming and gentle, but he was uh, totally unfit for all, not just due to his temperament, but also due to the fact that he probably had, uh, had, a, had some kind of learning disability that impaired his, his leadership abilities. So while Theodore was the Tsar in name, it was actually another bloke whose name was Boris Godunov, right, who was, who was really in charge. He was Theodore's brother-in-law. He was married to Theodore's sister. And he was a boyar, which is to say, roughly speaking, he was a duke, a, a, you know, a high-ranking noble in Russia. Now, Godunov, he became the de facto regent, effectively, for Theodore, and he was the ruler of Russia, uh, you know, in all but name. He he uh, he took charge of the country, given that Fedor was was mostly incapable of doing so. And this arrangement, look, it worked out for a time. It worked out for a while until 1598, when uh, Fedor the first died at the age of just 40. Now, when he died, critically, right, he died without having any uh, children survive him, and therefore died without an heir. Now, he did have a younger brother or half brother, technically, uh, whose name was Dmitri. Now, his dad had also been Ivan the Terrible. Uh, and Dmitri, therefore, would have taken the throne, except he died back in 1591. And the circumstances of Dmitri's death were more than a little bit suspicious, let me tell you this. He'd been stabbed, right? He died of a knife wound, and he had probably been stabbed on the orders of Godunov. Why, you might ask? Why would Godunov want to want to murder a member of the royal family? Well, because Godunov realised that if Theodore died without an heir, which seemed likely... And if Dmitri were out of the way, he, Godunov himself, would be the natural replacement for Theodore as he'd been regent all these years and there would be no one else to step into the, uh, step into the shoes of the Tsar. So, you know, Godunov would be able to say, well, I've, you know, I've been in this job a long time. I'll just take it from here, right? So, depending on who you ask, Godunov ordered the assassination of young Dmitri back in 1591 when he was just a boy, you know, just eight or nine years old, this young Dmitri was. Although... There are people who believe it was an accident. Some historians do think that Dmitri accidentally killed himself while playing with a knife. So, who knows? Or, third option, maybe he didn't die at all. We'll come to this in a little bit, but just remember, 1591, Dmitri died after being stabbed. Godunov probably did it, might not have done it, who knows? But in any case, he goes about saying it was a, it was an accident, you know, but not a, it might have been him what done it, we don't know. Anyway. Fedor dies in 1598, seven years after his younger brother. There's no heir. Godunov now, he steps in and attempts to take control of the succession crisis, just as he thought he might. Godunov now, as a de facto regent, he fancies his chances of becoming Tsar and so continues to rule like nothing had happened. Except a lot was happening in Russia at the time. Like, a lot, right? So when Godunov's reign started, things were going okay. But as we move into the 17th century, stuff went south for him very quickly indeed, because not only was there very widespread political dissatisfaction with Godunov as the as the the leader of Russia here, tons of other issues were cropping up and plunging the country into chaos here. So, firstly, political side of things, Godunov was not too popular, not at all. Uh, in particular, he wasn't popular with the other nobles who weren't too keen on being ruled over by a boyar. You know, they, he was one of them effectively, and and they saw him as a usurper, you know, an upstart who would attempt who was attempted to rise above his station. But it wasn't just internally that he was unpopular. Also externally, internationally, he spurned some of the diplomatic advances made by neighbours like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. We'll be talking about them a lot uh, this week. Um, but much more important than this, right, much more important was the, than the political side of things, 
was what was going on uh, inside Russia when it came to its people, just the just the, the, the social, the economic situation for for Russian, uh, you know, for, for for Russians themselves, because there was a widespread famine that gripped the country between 1601 and 1603. Freezing cold summers, ruined harvests, and food shortages were were rampant. Two million Russians starved to death during this period, about a third of the total population. Rural areas were devastated. Disease swept through the country. Its economy was in tatters. People were fleeing to Moscow to try to take advantage of what little food and money was available there. And on the whole, the situation was just one great big mess. Now, you can imagine how Godunov was seen. He's massively unpopular. He's the head of a ruined, ineffective government. People are dying. Other nobles hating him. It's all gone about as wrong as possible for him. But, of course, it only got worse from there. Because guess who popped up next? In 1603, over in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the neighbour state to Russia at this point here, there was a bloke who emerged calling himself, can you guess, Dmitry. That's right, Dmitry, Ivan the Terrible's son, who had supposedly been assassinated, he's now come out of the woodwork, he's back, he's ready to claim his throne. Now, of course... It almost certainly wasn't the real Dimitri, so much so that he's known to history as False Dimitri I. I mean, I said there were going to be a couple of these people. There are more False Dimitris coming, don't we? That's why we have to number them. Don't you worry about it. But false or genuine, probably false. It didn't matter. People were very ready to believe anything that might rid them of Godunov. And so this claimant to the throne, legitimate or not, probably not, gained a lot of political support very quickly. And perhaps more importantly, also gained military support from none other than the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Commonwealth was keen to take advantage of Russia's situation, and so they happily supported false Dmitry's claim to the throne and his invasion. They were hoping to spread Catholicism to Orthodox Russia uh, and increase their political influence by having Dmitry in their pockets and, you know, more or less help him take Russia over with this claim that he more or less, you know, pulled out of thin air here. Now, Godunov, he did what he could to repel this invasion and prevent himself from being overthrown. And to his credit, you know, I will say this, he never was overthrown. But the reason for that was the fact that he died in 1605 after a nasty stroke. Probably not how he would have wanted to, you know, avoid being overthrown, but that's how it went. He was succeeded by his 16-year-old son, whose name, of course, here we go, was also Fyodor. So he's Fyodor II. Um, now, by all accounts, Fyodor II, he was a clever kid, and his old man had known that he'd be in danger the moment he plonked his ass onto the throne, so the two of them had made themselves as ready as possible for false Dmitri and his Polish and Lithuanian friends, but it was no good. False Dmitri gathered up this uh, this army, bolstered by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, of course, marched on Moscow, and was welcomed warmly by the boyars who opposed Godunov, and now, of course, his son, Fyodor II. They didn't want this dynasty to, uh, to continue. So... Within two months of his dad's death, poor Fyodor was arrested by the boyars and to put the matter, you know, matter beyond any doubt, he was also strangled to death, the poor bastard. So, Dimitri, the false Dimitri now, boyars, they're going about saying, yep, yep, he's the real McCoy, we're sure of it, definitely the son of Ivan the Terrible, no doubting it whatsoever, the prodigal son has returned and now we've got, you know, a rightful heir of, of Ivan the Terrible back on the throne, just just as, as you know, just as it should be. In fact, right, this was such a, uh, you know, this is our story and we're sticking to it moment, that even the bloke who had been the one to confirm the death of Dimitri originally back in 1591 when he was just a boy, when he was killed, right, 
even that bloke, his name was Vasily Shuisky, he come out and he said, no, 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 look, I was wrong. This bloke's legit. So all that stuff I said back in 1591, I was talking at my bum, this is the real Dimitri here. So they've really, really set this bloke up as the legitimate heir of Ivan the Terrible, which almost certainly wasn't the case. Even Ivan's widow, right, his supposed mother, confirmed this that this false Dimitri was her son. So everyone's jumping aboard the Dimitri bandwagon here. I don't know many of them actually believed it i mean many polish nobles who supported him knew that he was talking out his bum you know they were just happy to go and steamroll russia and set up effectively a puppet czar but as for the people in russia i don't know how many people actually believed that this bloke was the son of ivan the terrible but that didn't matter he's kicking goals with both feet here and he's crowned czar on the 21st of july in 1605 and brilliant smooth sailing from there on out for about five minutes that is because it turns out the Russian boyars very quickly realised that they'd made a huge mistake by essentially installing a Polish-Lithuanian puppet on their throne. False Dmitri, he was a Catholic. He immediately installed a bunch of Polish Catholics at his court. He was very, very closely aligned with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and uh, sought to, you know, formalise an alliance essentially between Russia and the Commonwealth and on top of that, the Papal States. He also up, uh, opened Russia up to uh, to foreigners, which did not go down very well. I mean, none of none of this whole situation went down down well with the uh, with the Orthodox Russian boyars, right? They didn't like this this Catholic coming in and ruling the roost. They didn't like him bringing all these other foreigners, or whatever else. And would you believe it? Vasily Shuisky himself is once again at the center of things here, as the boyars realize they've really put their foot in it. Remember. Vasily was the bloke who first claimed that Dmitri was killed and then turned around, he chucked to Yui and said, oh, no, 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 he's, he, he's not. And now once again, he's put in, into reverse and he's plotting against the Tsar to try to undo what he had just wrought. Just 10 days after false Dmitri got married, right, to a Catholic Polish noblewoman, no less, Vasily and his allies made their move. Now, Dmitri hasn't even been the Tsar for a year at this point. He's only been in, in charge for, you know, 10, 11 months by the, by the time that the, the boyars are finally sick of it. But this marriage was obviously the, the final straw. The, the, the boyars had been stirring up trouble. They'd been stirring up, you know, anti-Polish, anti-Catholic sentiment amongst not just themselves, but also the, the broader populace of, of Russia. And uh, in response, or, or shortly after this wedding, an armed uprising took place in Moscow, supported, perhaps even initiated, by Vasily and the other boyars. And uh, these armed uh, these armed rebels here, they stormed the Kremlin. Now, false Dmitri, he attempted to make an escape. He tried to jump out a window, but he broke his leg in the fall. And before he could get away, he was seized by the mob and he was killed then and there. And after he was killed and after his body was, you know, been displayed to show that they'd done away with this bloke, uh, this bit's brilliant, it seemed that the Russians wanted to return False Dmitri to his Polish masters. So what did they do? They cremated him, they put his remains into a cannon, and they shot the cannon in the direction of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Absolutely brilliant. Now, I don't know what the range on this cannon was. I don't know if it could travel the hundreds of kilometres all the way back to Poland. But certainly it was the, uh, the symbolism of the occasion that counted there. They, uh, they, uh, they effectively, effectively yeah, fired him out of a cannon back from whence he'd come. And uh, then just for good measure, all the Catholics that False Demetri had imported were also, you know, locked up or just massacred. Sorry about that. And that was the end of the first false Dimitri. But who was to replace him? Well, why? 
Of course, it was none other than Vasily Shuisky himself, who is today known as Vasily IV. But I'll tell you this, even if he's offered some recognition by history as a Tsar today, he hardly got any recognition back then. Russia, Russia at this point, in total disarray. They're going through Tsars like it's going out of style. The failure of this centralised government to, you know, do anything in terms of looking after its country led to widespread anarchy and chaos. There are uprisings and rebellions all over the place. There were bandits and brigands roaming around. There are bands of mercenaries going around causing trouble. It really was a bad time. A bad time of troubles, in fact. <laughs> Once again, a very appropriate name there. Anyway, Vasily, he did what he he did what he could, right, to try to govern. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, he was pretty bloody ineffective. Let me tell you, you couldn't even get the other boyars to agree on anything. They they hardly even recognised him as the tsar. In all honesty, and but but the reason he stayed is because there was no one else to replace him, right? He'd been the main mover and shaker in uh, well, not only bringing down false Demetri, but also, I guess, setting him up in the first place. So he's a pretty prominent bloke. But there was just no, like, if they'd gotten rid of him, they wouldn't have had anyone to replace him with. So he just kind of clung to this irrelevant title, largely irrelevant title, for quite some time, irrespective of how much actually power he had. I mean, he had plenty to deal with, and he, he tried to deal with it, of course, but it only got worse for him in 1607 because guess who popped up? You'll you'll never guess. It is that. I mean, that's right. Yes, it is. In fact, false Dmitri the second. Once again, this guy emerging in a small Russian town. He claiming he claimed that he was the real Dmitri, son of Ivan the Terrible. Here I am. Don't even worry about it. Um, and believe it or not, once again, supporters flocked to his side. Just goes to show that people weren't happy with Vasily. They weren't happy with the boys. They wanted an actual, you know, they wanted a son of Ivan the Terrible back on the throne. So false Dmitri II, he's, uh, he's getting up and about. And uh, it's not just people in Russia that flocked to his side. It is, of course, the Poles as well. They were keen as anything to further destabilize Russia, their neighbor. And here's what's really funny, right? The Poles reunited this bloke with the wife of the previous false Dimitri, the one who had been shot out of a cannon just days after his marriage. And wouldn't you know, she claimed to recognize him as her former husband. So this bloke was claiming to be the bloke who had already taken the throne and then been killed, cremated, shot out of a cannon. And now he's back for a second round. I mean, incredible. You burn a bloke to cinders, you fire him out of a cannon just a few years later, he's back again, popping in the mouth guard, popping the gloves on, he's ready to go for round number two. Anyway, false Dmitri II, he took advantage of the political turmoil in Russia by mounting an attack on Vasily and upon Moscow, the city, with plenty of willing soldiers and subjects behind him as he did. Now, he captured town after town on his way to Moscow and his army grew and grew as time passed. So much so that in the spring of 1608, he launched a full-on attack, a full-scale attack on Moscow and absolutely gave it to Vasily and his army with both barrels. False Dimitri II was going gangbusters here. He had the support not only of a bunch of Russians who wanted to see the boyars overthrown, but also, of course, the Polish king, Sigismund III. Vasily realised he had to do something here. He realised that he was outnumbered, outmatched and outgunned. So he approached Sweden, another neighbour and a rival to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And he said, listen, the enemy, enemy of my enemy is your friend, da-da-da-da-da. Let's, let's deal with these Poles together, he proposed an alliance. Now, the Swedes, who had kind of been keeping out of it so far, they realised that, you know, Russia was... They, they had Russia over a barrel, absolutely had him over a barrel here, and they gouged the pants off Vasily 
before they, uh, you know, before they granted him, him this alliance. They made him give them a huge amount of land around St. Uh, Petersburg, as well as a fortress uh, before they'd help fight the Poles. And Vasily was, was so desperate that he had to do this. He had to give the Swedes what they wanted. So once the alliance was, uh, was signed off on, the Swedes, they joined the Russians in trying to fight off false Dmitri II and his armies, and they were completely unsuccessful. They did win a few small victories here and there, admittedly, but Dmitri and his Polish allies were far too powerful for Vasily, even with the Swedes jumping in on, uh, on, the, sides of, on the side of the Russians as well. And eventually, in 1610, Vasily was defeated once and for all. The Battle of Klushino saw the end of Vasily's reign as Tsar. The Polish military was far superior with their mounted hussars. Uh, they won a battle. This, this, this victory was an overwhelming victory at the, uh, at the Battle of Klushino. The, the Poles won against the Russians, even when outnumbered almost five to one. Such was the strength of the, of the Polish cavalry. Anyway, Vasily... That's the end of the. Uh, that's the end of him. He was overthrown. He was imprisoned by some of the other boyars. They saw the writing on the wall and they were ready to admit defeat. So it wasn't even the poles that actually brought it. I mean, I guess it was, but uh, the actual downfall of Vasily was at the hands of his uh, the other boyars, right? His his contemporaries there. After the poles won this decisive victory, the boyars are capitulating. False Dmitri the second. He is poised to take his throne after this uh, after this very successful invasion backed by the poles. But then a twist, because it turns out that the Polish didn't want false Dmitri II on the Russian throne after all. Can you believe it? It turns out that all along, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was engaging in political opportunism to take advantage of a weakened neighbour. What a shocking turn of events that no one could have foreseen. Instead of installing false Dmitri II, the Polish king Sigismund, right, he turned around and he said, no, 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 I've got a better idea. Let's plonk my own son, a bloke named Vladislav, right? Let's put him on the Russian throne instead. And at this stage, the pro-Polish Russian boyars, they are more than happy to accept him as their new Tsar, right? Anything for stability, anything for a little bit of peace and quiet here. So the pro-Polish Russian boyars, they approach, uh, they approach the, the, the Poles, they approach people from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and they say, listen, we are interested in having this bloke Vladislav as our, as our Tsar, but we do want to you know, negotiate a little bit. We want to uh, come to some kind of a compromise. Uh, they attempted to strike a deal where Vladislav wouldn't attempt to quash Russian orthodoxy like the Catholics had done previously. They wanted him to convert. Um, and uh, in a show of good faith, right, to get to to uh, to get the Poles on side, these boyars, right, they actually welcomed the invading Polish army into Moscow. They helped them set up shop in the Kremlin, and then they said, "Listen, here's what we want: we want protection, protection for our religion. We want our, uh, you know, our rights and, and privileges as Russian boyars to remain unchanged. And then we'd love to have this bloke Vladislav come in and be our tsar. Now, poor old false Dmitri. I mean, he's just." completely out of the picture. Don't forget the bulk of his army was Polish. And so when their king made the announcement that there was going to be a change of plans, they all abandoned him. Dimitri's left with a couple of people who remained loyal to him. And, you know, he tried to fight, he tried to continue to fight for the, the throne that he claimed was his. But, I mean, he didn't do very well. He ended up dying before the end of 1610. He was forced to withdraw with what force he had remaining. And he was killed after getting drunk and flogging a Tatar prince uh, who shot him and then cut off his head with a sabre. Brutal. So that was the end of False Dimitri II. Uh, although... Once again, not the end of the false Dimitris, let me tell you this. Anyway, 
big victory for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, of course, and with this deal that the Russian uh, that the Russians are seeking, right, to maintain Russian orthodoxy and secure their rights as boyars, Vladislav he's getting ready to head over to Russia. He's going to take up his new role as the Tsar. However, old mate Sigismund, at the last minute, he decided he didn't like the deal after all, and this was a pivotal moment in Russian history. Here, he decided that he wasn't going to let his son move to Moscow. And he wasn't going to let him convert to Russian Orthodoxy. No, no, no. He decided that instead, he himself, King Sigismund, would be the one to take the throne and become the Tsar and force all of Russia to convert to Catholicism. So just when they're on the cusp of settling everything down with a proper Tsar who has a measure of political authority and legitimacy, you know, who might bring in a level of stability, Sigismund goes, nope, it's my way or the highway. And it turns out, after all, it was the highway. Because all the boyars who had been keen on this compromise, they weren't so keen on a Catholic Polish monarch coming in and ruling the roost. And so once again, Russia was back at it fighting for their lives. Now, while Vladislav technically counted as a Russian Tsar because he was, you know, offered the offered the throne and he, he was happy to accept it, he was never coronated. He never sat on the throne itself. So Russia was effectively without any kind of real leader. But you just think how different things would have been if Sigismund hadn't had this change of heart. If Vladislav had come over to Russia, converted to Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodoxy and become, you know, with the blessing of the Tsar, become the Russian leader. Think about how different things might have been. Anyway, Absolute disaster scenario for Russia now that this is uh, this has happened. Polish forces, don't forget, they still occupy Mos- uh, Moscow. The, they've been welcomed in as part of this negotiation proce- process by the boyars, and they still occupy the Kremlin and, and most of the city here. On top of this, the Tatars are raiding them in the south. Bandits and, and, and brigands are devastating the countryside. Towns and cities are in enemy hands or, or ruined altogether. The dead were piling up as all these conflicts raged on. But that's not all. Because if you'll believe it, It only got worse from there for the Russians because now the Swedes broke off their alliance after the business with Vladislav and Sigismund, and instead they also attacked Russia as well. Sweden fought what's now known as the Ingrian War with Russia from 1610 onwards, attempting to put a Swede on the essentially empty Russian throne. But wouldn't you know it, there was someone else who also sought the throne. So not only are Russia fighting against Poland, not only are they fighting against Sweden, now there's another bloke who's emerging and coming along and saying, no, no, that throne is mine after all, and you'll never guess who it was. It was, of course, the third and final false Dimitri who emerged in 1611. Now, this was a similar, but this time much less successful story. Bloke come out of nowhere, claimed to be the son of Ivan the Terrible, had supporters flocked to his side, and he began to campaign to claim the throne that he claimed was rightfully his. False Dimitri III, however, had the worst go with a lot of them because he hardly got off the mark, to be honest, before he was captured and executed in 1612. Perhaps the Russians had learnt their lesson by now not to let these things get out of hand. And they do say, I mean, you know, it's not about winning but having a go. I don't know how true that is when it comes to, you know, false Dimitri III, because in this bloke's case, I probably would have, you know, kept my head down. Historically speaking, it hadn't gone too well for the other false Dimitris being fired out of cannons and whatnot. So, you know, I don't know why he thought it might be different for him. But, uh, I mean, sorry, by the way, for the rubbish dis- dismount on the on the false Dimitri stories. The other two were all right. But this one, I mean, he hardly even tried. Didn't didn't have his head cut off. Didn't, didn't get fired out of a cannon. I mean, was he even trying? I don't know what's going on. Anyway, 
Back in Polish-occupied Moscow, right, things are starting to take a bit of a turn after some time. As I say, the Russians, they're doing their best to try to fight off the Swedes, doing their best to try to fight off the uh, the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But there's, you know, in addition to all this anti-Polish, anti-Catholic sentiment that's getting stirred up by the boyars who aren't able to compromise with Vladislav, right, uh, in addition to all the militias that are being set up to try to resist effective Polish rule in Moscow, right, uh, although without too much success to begin with, another element emerges to destabilise the Poles here and finally put some wind in the sails of the Russians. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, they're holding Moscow with their troops and, their, and, and, and a bunch of German mercenaries as well, as I say, they hold the Kremlin. They're putting down uprisings and riots. They're killing thousands. They burn half the city to the ground, to be honest. And it wasn't a great spot for the Russians initially. But as I say, the wind is about to change because Poland is running out of money to pay its troops and mercenaries. And finally, this comes to a head in January 1612. Comes back to bite them on the bum because the army and the mercenaries, after not being paid for who knows how long, they mutinied. They weren't getting paid. They didn't want to stick around and fight these militias, quash these riots, continue to burn Moscow to the ground miles from home when they're not getting paid for it. So they packed up their bags and they left town. They ignored their orders to stay and occupy Moscow and they marched back to the Commonwealth sick and tired. Now, some did remain. There were some who remained loyal to uh, to Poland. There were the, those inside the Kremlin, in particular. They they held the uh, they held the Kremlin and and uh, and remained behind in Moscow. But the vast majority of the Polish army they packed up and they left. Now the Russian militias who had been harrying the Polish force, forces in Moscow they pounced to retake their city. While Sigismund, hearing of these developments, he gathered his forces to take the fight back to Moscow with troops that had presumably been paid and were willing to fight for him. But Sigismund never got there. The fighting continued throughout 1612, and a small, this small garrison of Polish troops that had stayed loyal, as I said, remained in occupation of the Kremlin. They stayed holding out and waiting for Sigismund to arrive. And as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth launched attacks on other Russian cities, they continued to you know, leave a path of destruction in their wake as they headed back to Moscow. The Russians held on to their major city, and eventually, in November, the Polish garrison in the Kremlin finally surrendered. And this marked the end of the Polish campaign for Moscow. Sigismund was just 30 kilometres away from the city when he heard of the capitulation, and he decided to throw in the towel and head back home. The Russians had somehow done it. They defended their homeland, or some of it at least, from the invaders, although they would go on to lose the Ingrian War with the Swedes and lost a lot of territory to Poland, Lithuania, outside of Moscow as well, but they'd preserved their independence and they'd repelled the Polish forces from taking them over completely, which isn't such a bad result, considering how terribly everything had been going for Russia since the death of Fedor I. And remember, they still don't really have a Tsar. Speaking of which, they need one quite badly too to try to stabilise the country properly and think and you know get things back on track. So. The year after the Battle of Moscow in 1613, a young 16-year-old boy by the name of Michael was elected Tsar by the Zemsky Sabor, sort of old Russian parliament. Michael was chosen because his great-aunt had been the first wife of Ivan the Terrible. Sure, good enough, they said. He'll do. Get him on the throne. He was also the son and nephew of some of the more powerful boyars, so he was seen as a good choice, and largely speaking, I guess, you know, the boy was so sick and tired of all this conflict and everything else. The Zemsky Sabor decided that they had to draw a line somewhere, and this this Michael kid was, you know, a good compromise candidate here. However, 
There are a couple of problems with picking him. The first of which is, they didn't know where he was. His family had been exiled by Godunov over a decade ago, and so the boyars need to, actually, need to actually locate the kid that they wanted to make the Tsar before they could do it. On top of that, they needed to find him before the Poles found him, because despite their defeat in Moscow, the war wasn't over and there were still plenty of Polish troops in Russia itself. When it was announced that Michael was to become the Tsar, the Poles began to hunt for the young bloke as well, hoping to find him before the Russians did and, and just kill him before he could be properly crowned, continue to destabilise Russia as it began this, uh, this path towards stabilisation. And it's from this Polish hunt for Michael that a very famous folk tale comes, the tale of Ivan Susanin. Now, this, this bit might not actually be historically true. It's more of a tale or a legend, but I thought it was still worth sharing because it's very interesting indeed. The story goes, and again, probably just legend here, probably just a folk tale, but the story goes, that Polish troops were tracking Michael down in the lands that his family owned, having heard that he was in a village called Domnino, right? Now, these troops, they didn't know the way to this village. And so they're asking locals for directions as they roamed about this way and that, trying to find, uh, you know, trying to find his, his hiding place. The troops eventually came to a forest near the village and uh, still not knowing exactly where the village was, they stopped to ask an old woodcutter the way. Now, this woodcutter, whose name was Ivan Susanin, he was only too happy to lead them to the village. Not only was he going to tell them the way, but he said, listen, I'll do you one better. I know a shortcut through the forest itself. I'll get you there in no time, and I'm more than happy to actually take you there personally. Now, the troops are loving this. Bloody brilliant. Get there nice and quick. Off this young kid. Job done, mate. We can all go home. So, Ivan, he leads them into the cold, snowy woods, promising, right, that, you know, it's it's the fastest way to this village where Michael's hiding, get you there in no time. He leads them off into the snow, into the into the woods here, and he was never seen again. And nor were the Polish troops. The story goes that Ivan deliberately led these troops into the forest to get lost, where they perished in the freezing February night, and him with them. He martyred himself to save the young Tsar. Meanwhile, his son-in-law took the actual way to Domnino to warn Michael of his peril, and so the young Tsar to be was able to hide until he was found by the Russians that sought to crown him. Now, the tale of Ivan Susanin might not necessarily be true, but it's a good it's a good story all the same. You know, tale of selfless sacrifice to protect the the life of the uh, the young life of the Tsar. But interestingly, one of the one of the cultural legacies of the story of the story of Ivan Susanin is that today in Russia, if you get called Susanin, it's usually to mock you for not knowing the way to where you're going. I mean, sure, kinda, but that was the whole point. I mean, Ivan Susan and he knew where he wasn't going, I guess. But it is. I was interested to learn that Susan now is something that you call someone to to make fun of them for you know not knowing the way somewhere. Anyway, that story may or may not be true. Probably not. But what is true is this: eventually, the Russians they found Michael hiding away with his mum, and they told him. Surprise, surprise, you've been elected as the Tsar of Russia. But now, there was a new problem. He didn't want to be Tsar of Russia. He turned down the offer. Tsars, pretenders and usurpers, they had not done too well recently. And both Michael and his mum said, thanks, but no thanks, don't want it. I don't want to put myself in this danger. The, the shelf life, the life expectancy of a, uh, of a Russian Tsar at this point, not too hot. So, 
The Zemsky Sabor, they begged Michael upon bended knee to become the Tsar. Imagine this. Imagine begging someone to become an emperor. And eventually, after a lot of persuading the young man, he finally changed his mind and said, all right, I guess I'll do it. Michael became Tsar and was coronated on July uh, in July 1613 on his 17th birthday. And with him on the throne, finally, the succession crisis was over. And with it, broadly speaking, the time of troubles. Russia turned its focus to ridding the country of its invaders. Uh, the wars with both the Swedes and the Poles were ongoing. They lasted for another four and six years respectively. And uh, look, to be honest, Russia did not do too well in either of them. They lost quite a bit of territory to both the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and to Sweden. But importantly, they retained their sovereignty and their existence in the face of a dire political crisis that really could have been the end of Russia had things gone differently. As it was, however, even with the territorial losses, Russia, it pulled through. And in the fullness of time, would go on to reclaim the lost territory, the, the territory that both Poland and, uh, and, and Sweden was able to snag during this period. Uh, as the new Tsar and his heirs took up the, the leadership of the country, Russia, of course, did recover. And the time of troubles, they say, was in the rear view. Once Michael took the throne, it was, it was effectively over. And once the wars were finished, Russia began a slow return to stability and eventually prosperity as well. Tsar Michael ruled for over 30 years and in his time extended Russia's territory eastward rather than westward, all the way to the Pacific by conquering Siberia. In fact, Michael's rise to power ended up being enormously influential on Russian history, a fact that will become very obvious when I tell you the noble house to which he belonged. Michael was the first Tsar of House Romanov, the very same house, in fact, that the last Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, belonged to. In 1917, over 300 years after Michael took the throne, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated during the Russian Revolution, of course, ending over 300 years of Romanov rule over Russia. And in 1917, of course, it was a time of conflict, war, uprisings and political chaos. And that was what saw the end of the Romanovs in Russia. It's very interesting to learn that with the time of troubles, a period of conflict, war, uprisings and political chaos, it was the very same atmosphere in which the time of the Romanovs began as well. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Time of Troubles. A little bit of Russian history for you to enjoy. And I do hope you got something out of it. Thanks once again to Alexander Markov for suggesting this as a topic. Uh, if you want to do the same thing and follow in his exalted footsteps, of course, uh, I'll tell you how to do it. Here's the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way at the end of every episode, of course. Halfhousehistory.net is where you can go. It's where uh, it's where Alexander went uh, to send in this as a topic suggestion. There's a contact form on the website. Best way to get in touch with me there. Uh, or, of course, you can jump on the Discord, bit.ly slash join Riley's Discord. If you scroll down, there's a half Us History topic suggestion channel, and uh, plenty of people are in there uh, letting me know what ideas they think might be good ones for topics. So please do the same if you've got one that uh, you'd like me to get across, because uh, I, I always do appreciate it when people do this. Uh, and if you've got feedback or anything else, of course, you can use the uh, the contact form uh, to get in touch with me for whatever reason. Uh, if you want to support the show, of course, financially, patreon.com slash half history, a range of benefits that you can gain access to there for as little as $1 a month. Uh, getting quick, there's 
Well, I say getting quick. There's no time limit. Like, the Patreon's not going anywhere. Um, and, of course, a special thank you to everyone who is supporting me week in and week out on Patreon. Uh, the show. Uh, it's not that it wouldn't be possible without people supporting me on Patreon, but I'd probably, probably a, a lot less, like, you know, enthused about it because, uh, hey, it's a nice little spur to the flank there. Uh, so thank you very much for keeping me honest, all the people on Patreon, making sure these episodes get churned out every week. And, hey, if you're not a Patreon, thanks anyway for having to listen to this dumb podcast, and, uh, and I hope you enjoyed it. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. Tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. That is that for this week, my friends. We're going to close things out, of course, with a question posed on Reddit, as we do every week. This one, as you would expect to do with Russia, it comes to us from WhiteFox53, who asks, Due to rising tensions with Russia coupled with global warming, are we about to enter a hot war?